in a, uh, in a 2016 survey of American political culture, some sociologists at the University of Virginia reported that 90% of Americans think that most politicians are more interested in getting elected than in doing what is right. They also found that, 70, that 84% of Americans think that Wall Street and big, big, and big business often profit at the expense of ordinary citizens. And another 74% agreed with the statement, quote, you can't believe much of what you hear from the mainstream media. I could give you more statistics, uh, but the basic point should be pretty clear. If there was a time when we trusted those in leadership to do what is right and in our best interest, be they politicians or journalists or corporate executives, we don't trust them anymore. And the evidence of that lack of trust is everywhere. Just think of some of the protest movements that have risen in recent years, from Occupy Wall Street to the Tea Party to Black Lives Matter. Think of the tremendous support for outsider populist candidates in the last election cycle, such as Donald Trump and Bernie Sanders. Whether or not you agree with these protests or the candidates, the fact that they have gained such prominence is a clear sign of the widespread distrust Americans feel toward those in charge. This attitude is so prevalent, in fact, that it has prompted some people to begin wondering whether our very democracy is at stake. Even Francis Fukuyama, the Stanford political scientist who made a career out of arguing that Western liberal democracy is the final form of human government, has begun to wonder whether in fact our democracy will be able to manage the deep distrust of the American populace toward its leaders. In times like these, it's easy to despair. After all, there are good reasons why so many Americans distrust their leaders. In 2008, we suffered one of the most severe economic setbacks since the Great Depression. And it was due to the opportunistic greed and irresponsibility of many of our top financial executives and investors. And what happened to those responsible? Well, while many normal Americans suffered, uh, many of them received hefty bonuses or golden parachutes. Look at Congress. It has an abysmal approval rating. Somewhere it's, it's hovering right now at about 13%. But it's, it's pretty understandable. After all, other than keeping the government going, and that only barely, what significant legislation have they passed in recent years to address many of the most pressing problems in our society? And now, for the past three or four weeks, we have been learning almost daily of yet one more trusted figure whose public persona is contradicted by private predatory behavior. So yes, it is easy to despair. And it's easy to get caught up in the anger and resentment that saturates so much of our social media feeds. But as Christians, of course, this cannot be our response. We are supposed to be a people of hope, a people whose actions and attitudes prompt those around us to ask a reason for the hope that is in us. And when they ask, we're supposed to be able to give a response. This is, the, this is the theme of my sermon today, a reason for hope in the face of political failure. And the text of this sermon is our Old Testament reading, Ezekiel 34. 
You can turn to the book of Ezekiel if you have your Bible with you. Ezekiel is a good place to turn in a time of political crisis and national despair because that is precisely the situation in which it was written. Ezekiel was a priest who lived among Jewish exiles who had been taken captive by Babylon in the year 597, due in no small part to a series of truly terrible kings. It was in the fifth year of their exile, Ezekiel tells us, when he first received his prophetic call. And for the next 20 or so years of his life, he continued to receive messages from God and he continued to prophesy. The audience to which Ezekiel brought these messages were other Jews like him who had been taken captive and exiled from their home. You can imagine then that they were not in terribly high spirits, and you might expect Ezekiel's messages to be comforting, positive, uplifting. For the most part, however, if you read the book, his message was not one of hope, but one of judgment. For the first five years or so of his ministry, he prophesied of the forthcoming destruction of the city of Jerusalem and of Solomon's temple. And he told the people that this destruction was a consequence of their sin and rebellion against God. Many times he gave them this message, sometimes in the form of a vision, sometimes in the form of very strange symbolic actions that he enacted, sometimes pretty straightforwardly. But it seems the people didn't listen. They regarded Ezekiel as something of an entertainer. They compared him to a singer of love songs with a beautiful voice. Ezekiel was a show, and they loved attending, they loved watching Ezekiel, but they didn't really do anything in response to his actual message. But God told Ezekiel that Jerusalem would be destroyed, and that when it happened, the people would know that he was not an entertainer, but a prophet of God. And so it happened. Babylon besieged Jerusalem again, and this time, they destroyed it and its temple. Mount Zion, the city of God, had come to an end. This is the context of Ezekiel 34. It's just in the previous chapter, chapter 33, that the news of Jerusalem's destruction arrives. And now another message comes. In verse 1 we read, The word of the Lord came to me. God has something to say. And the word that he gives is a word of judgment against the, quote, shepherds of Israel. Well, who are these shepherds? Shepherd was a common metaphor in the ancient Near Eastern world for kings. As one ancient Babylonian proverb puts it, the absence of a king, in the absence of a king, the people are like a flock gone astray without a shepherd. It's an illuminating metaphor since it draws attention to the similarity between the role of shepherds and the role of rulers. Like a shepherd, a good king should provide for and protect his people. According to the word that comes to Ezekiel, however, this is precisely what Israel's kings have failed to do. Instead of feeding and sheltering their sheep, they have eaten and abused them. Instead of protecting those who are weak, caring for those who were sick and seeking after those who were lost, they have neglected their sheep and ruled them with ruthless force. Ezekiel doesn't explain precisely how 
These shepherding metaphors relate to concrete actions of Israel's rulers, but it's not very difficult to imagine what he had in mind. We know what it is like to have rulers who care more about their own careers and happiness than the well-being of those under their care. We have seen how those in power can take advantage of their status and neglect the weak and the sick and the poor. If the statistics I mentioned just a moment ago are accurate, it seems we're even starting to expect this sort of behavior. And if Israel had listened to Samuel way back when they first asked for a king, they ought to have expected this sort of abusive behavior as well. Samuel told them what they would get if they demanded a king. Someone who would take their children as his servants. Someone who would take their land and produce for his own use. But did Israel listen? No. They wanted a king. They demanded a king. Well, they got their king. But it turns out that the king was pretty much like what Samuel said he would be. Basically, all their kings were. Remember that even even the greatest king they had, the shepherd king himself, King David, used his position to steal the wife of a loyal subject and murder that subject so as not to be found out. And David was a saint compared to most of them. But just because corrupt and unjust behavior is common among those in power, and just because it was common in the lives and actions of Israel's kings, does not mean that God overlooks it. The word that God gave to Ezekiel for these shepherds was unambiguous. Behold, I am against the shepherds of Israel, and I will require my sheep at their hand and put a stop to their feeding the sheep. This is a word that we need to hear today. This is a word especially that victims need to hear today. They need to know that our God is a God of justice. Nothing escapes his view, and he cares deeply about wrongs that are committed and the victims of those wrongs. Politicians may think that they can hide their abuses through financial settlements and non-disclosure agreements, or that they can get away with them by simply appealing to the tribal loyalty of political partisanship, but nothing is hidden from God. Powerful film executives and famous television hosts may think that their status gives them free reign to treat their subordinates as objects for their own pleasure and abuse, but God still holds them to account. In and of itself, this is a cause for hope. As Christians, we need not despair in the face of immoral and unjust leadership because we serve a God who has promised to hold those in power to account and put a stop to their abuse, and our God keeps his promises. But this is not all. In verse 11, Ezekiel continues delivering his message from the Lord, and here he gives us an even greater reason for hope. Listen to this. For thus says the Lord God, Behold, I, I myself, will search for my sheep and will seek them out. As a, as a shepherd seeks out his flock when he is among his sheep that have been scattered, so will I seek out my sheep. This is good news. Better even than the news that God was going to free his people from the hands of abusive leadership. In fact, it would not be going too far to say that this is Ezekiel's announcement of the gospel. 
that God himself will become his people's shepherd, that he will be their king. For what Ezekiel is announcing is not just that God will bring an end to injustice or just that he will hold those in power to account, though he does say that, nor is it just an announcement that God will replace Israel's abusive monarchy with a more representative form of government. I am very grateful to live in a democratic republic instead of a monarchy and dictatorship, but I think we are all well aware that simply having a more representative form of government is no guarantee against corruption or abuse. No, the news that Ezekiel brings to Israel is a much greater promise than mere political reform. This is news of a regime change. News that a new king is coming. News that God himself will be Israel's king. And with God as king, Israel will finally know what it is like to have a good shepherd. If someone asks you what the gospel is, you can't find a much better summary than this. Here's what God says. I myself will be the shepherd of my sheep, and I myself will make them lie down. I will seek the lost, and I will bring back the strayed. I will bind up the injured, and I will strengthen the weak, and the fat and the strong I will destroy. I will feed them in justice. As Christians, we spend a lot of time talking about how we ought to live on the basis of our faith in Jesus, or how we have been invited to play a role in the mission of God. These are very important things to talk about. After all, God has given us responsibility as moral agents and instructions about how he wants us to live and a role to play in his mission. Strictly speaking, though, this is not the gospel. When the word of the Lord came to Ezekiel, it did not come to bring advice. It came to bring a promise. The word of the Lord did not come to tell Israel, look, you've had a really long line of bad kings, and that's part of the reason you're in this mess. So if you want things to improve, if you want to prosper again, then you should really start finding some better kings or just scrap this monarchy thing altogether. Don't get me wrong, the book of Ezekiel does contain many admonitions for Israel to repent of its sin and obey God, but that is not the word that Ezekiel bears now. Here, the word of the Lord that comes to Ezekiel is not mere advice. It is good news. It is not God telling Israel how to fix things or shape up. It is God promising to fix things himself. Maybe this doesn't seem like great news to you. Maybe you think that having any king at all feels oppressive, that it would be far better to simply be given the freedom to live how you want, independent, subject to no one. This is America, after all. Land of the free, where we're all masters of our own fate and captains of our own soul. But here's where the shepherding metaphor is really quite helpful. Because the truth is that all of us, even those who have managed to do very well in convincing others and perhaps even ourselves that we are really doing quite well on our own, all of us are really like sheep. Because on our own, we tend to make stupid choices, wander off in the wrong direction, and end up hurt, lost, and in danger. This was true of the people of Israel. I mean, there's a lot of history. You can just read their story. And it's true of us. We need a shepherd who will find us when we are lost and care for us when we are hurt 
and lead us to a place of happiness and rest. God is that kind of shepherd. As Psalm 23 says, He is a good shepherd who makes us lie down in green pastures and leads us beside still waters and restores our souls. So when he promises Israel to replace their kings with himself, it is very good news indeed. If you read on to verse 23, however, you'll notice something a little strange. Throughout this whole section, beginning in verse 11, God is promising to Israel that he will be their shepherd. But now, in verse 23, there seems to be a shift in that promise. In verse 23, he says, quote, And I shall set up over them one shepherd, my servant David, and he shall feed them. He shall feed them and be their shepherd. Well, which is it, Ezekiel? Is God promising that he himself will be Israel's shepherd and king? Or is he saying that he will give them another king, a human in the likeness of King David? Well, at least, unless we think that the prophecy is just a flat-out contradiction, it would seem to be that the answer to this question is both. Yes, God himself will be the shepherd. Yes, the human David, or a human in the line of David, what the prophet Jeremiah refers to as the righteous shoot coming out of the Davidic lineage, will be the shepherd. Yes, both. With this passage in mind, we can perhaps read some of Jesus' comments in the Gospels in a new light. In the Gospel of Mark, Jesus begins his ministry with an announcement. The kingdom of God has come near. On the face of it, this isn't so much a statement about Jesus himself, though, as simply a repetition of Ezekiel's announcement. God himself is becoming king. That's what Jesus is saying. Yet when Jesus does get around to talking about himself, he frequently implies that he is, in fact, the one who is king. In John 10, he even uses Ezekiel's shepherd metaphor, but instead of saying that God is the good shepherd, he calls himself the good shepherd who lays down his life for his sheep. And in Matthew 25, our gospel reading for today, Jesus tells his followers that when he returns, he will return as a king in glory, sitting on his glorious throne, and that he will judge the nations as a shepherd separates sheep from the goats. In other words, the message that Ezekiel brought to those exiled and beleaguered Jews bears a striking resemblance to the message that Jesus brought to his followers as they suffered under the oppression of sin and Roman rule. As the Anglican bishop and um, uh, New Testament scholar N.T. Wright has said, this is in fact the primary message that all four of our Gospels wish to convey. While Ezekiel's good news for Jewish exiles was the promise that God would be their king, the message that the New Testament Gospels desire to communicate, according to Wright, is how God became king. And the answer that they give is that God became king in the life, death, resurrection, and ascension of a Palestinian Jew named Jesus. The story of Jesus provides an answer to Ezekiel's twofold promise that God himself will shepherd his people and that David, the king, would return. It's this story that we are commemorating today 
a day which Anglicans, Lutherans, Catholics, and a host of other Christians around the world celebrate as Christ the King Sunday. More than a billion Christians around the world today are affirming that the word given to Ezekiel has been fulfilled and that Christ is King. But what does it mean to have Christ as King? What does it mean for us now, today, as American citizens during a time of political distrust and despair? If God is king, and if God became king in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, how does this change the way we think and live and feel here and now in Boston? Does it mean that we need not worry about corrupt politicians or greedy corporate leaders? When we hear sometime this week, as it seems we inevitably will, the news that yet another person who is rich and powerful, maybe someone we trusted, has used their wealth and position to harass, demean, abuse, or prey on the weak, should we as Christians just ignore it and pay no heed because, after all, Jesus is king? Well, no, of course not. If we are really members of Christ's kingdom, then we should hunger and thirst for righteousness, which is justice. And we should follow our king in taking the side of the weak and the vulnerable and the victims of wrongdoing, be they women who face harassment in the workplace, or religious or ethnic minorities who are victims of discrimination, or unborn and unwanted children who are treated as expendable. Just because the Jews in exile were told that their future hope rested in God becoming their king, they were not therefore exempted from caring about the well-being of their neighbors or working toward the betterment of the society they lived in. Um, if you've read the book of Jeremiah, you might remember it was these same exiled Jews who were told to seek the welfare of the city to which God had sent them. It was also from among the same group of exiles that we find some of the greatest examples in all the Bible of faithful political engagement by God's people. Examples like Esther and Daniel and Daniel's three friends. So having Christ as our king does not absolve us of our civic obligations of, or of our duty to be concerned when people are being wronged. But it does make a difference. Because Christ is our shepherd, we do not live in fear and we do not succumb to despair in the face of corruption, injustice, or just plain incompetence on the part of our leaders. As Marilyn Robinson has said, Fear is not a Christian habit of mind. Remember that this week when your social media feed lights up with the reactions to the most recent news cycle. If the condition of our world or the circumstances of your life tempts you to despair, then do what the psalmist says. Lift up your eyes to the hills and remember where your help comes from. Our help and our hope comes from our King, who is risen, who is now seated at the right hand, right hand of his Father in glory, who will return to judge the living and the dead. Also, because Christ is our King, we owe him our allegiance. When early Christians confessed their faith, their belief in Jesus as Lord, they were making a statement about where their loyalty and allegiance lay. And it was a politically subversive claim. Because if Jesus is king, 
then Caesar is not. Jesus' Jewish accusers recognized this, and they tried to use it against him. When they appealed to Pilate, saying that if Pilate released Jesus, he would be no friend of Caesar's, because everyone who makes himself a king, they said, opposes Caesar. Well, early Christians felt the consequences of this opposition. Some were harassed, imprisoned, or even killed for their refusal to bend the knee to the imperial power of Rome. And even where these particular threats were not experienced, there were high social costs to being a loyal subject of Jesus, particularly for those who held positions of high status. As Larry Hurtado, who's a, a scholar of early Christianity recently observed, when you consider the social and political consequences that accompanied conversion to Christianity in the first and second centuries of the Roman world, it is a wonder that anyone at all became a Christian. Today, at least in America, of course, we don't face these same consequences. No Caesar, no Roman prefects, no expectations that we would participate in pagan sacrifice that we have to decline. But Jesus still demands our allegiance. And if we give it to him, we should still expect it to carry costs. I can't predict what those costs may be for you. Perhaps it may come in the form of a loss of respect from people you admire. Perhaps it may mean that you have to renounce the, the sorts of luxury and comfort that your friends and family enjoy. Following Jesus may cost you friends. It may cost you career advancement. It may even cost you the love and respect of your family. I don't know what it will cost you, but I can tell you this. If you follow Jesus as king, there will be costs. Because Jesus said so. And if it's so far it has cost you nothing, then you may need to start asking yourself whether you have actually given him your real allegiance or not. Finally, we know that our king is returning. This is good news. Since as our reading from 1 Corinthians today reminds us, the return of our king will signal the defeat of everything that harms us, even death itself. It also means, however, that we must live in anticipation of his return. This is the theme of the entire chapter of Matthew 25, the last section of which we read today for our gospel reading. Uh, Matthew 25 is Jesus' last great sermon in the gospel of Matthew. And he uses two parables, one about virgins waiting for a wedding processional, and one about servants who are entrusted with a task and are held to account when their master returns. Both of these parables carry the same message. Be prepared. Get ready. When our king returns, he will return in judgment. So make sure you're living in expectation of his return. The word that was given to Ezekiel came true. Christ is king. Let us live as if we believe it.